I always just so appreciate all the gifts and talents in the Shoal Creek family and um, the way they draw from culture to really bring us to this point of having a conversation. I want to begin with a quote from the now deceased uh, Franciscan priest, Father Brennan Manning, who about all of this that we've experienced thus far, he would look at you and me and we'd say these words, don't should all over yourself. Isn't that great? Don't, should, all over yourself. Now, if you are hip to culture, I'm not. I just learned this about 15 minutes ago. But we began with the Taylor Swift song, and we just finished with the John Mayer song. Turns out they dated. Turns out they're no longer dating. But they're still songwriters. And the first song we heard was from Taylor talking to John, and then we just heard from John talking to Taylor. In other words, they're shooting on each other in this moment. Or it's a great marketing play. What do you think? I'm guessing maybe a little bit of both. The Apostle Paul was somebody that of anyone else on the planet uh, should, have, should have all over himself. And if you know a little bit of his story, it's okay if you don't. He says this one little line. We're going to unpack it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 He's kind of looking back on his life, and he says this, for I'm the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. Okay, so here's, here's Paul's story. He uh, grew up as an elite Jew. He was groomed. His pedigree was absolutely perfect. He did everything right at the right time in the right way, was led by the right people, was in the right tribe. Everything about his life, if he just held up the resume, it was just like, in literally his words, I was faultless, he said, right? And then Jesus and his followers come onto the scene, and it begins to disrupt everything that Paul thought about God, the ways that he experienced God, and all that he had built up. He had made quite an investment in his religious kind of pedigree. And now people are coming around saying, hey, guess what? You don't have to be perfect. Guess what? You don't have to like toe the line uh, and, and cross every T and dot every I because Jesus is like, he died for your sins and all your sins can be forgiven if you just give your life to him and follow. And Paul's going, no, wait a minute. I've invested my whole life in this like climbing this ladder, like jumping through all the religious hoops. And this guy, Jesus and his followers, they're dangerous. So literally, the first martyr in history of uh, Christ followers, Jesus followers, happened at the hands of Paul and his approval. The first, first death on record happened as a result of Paul, who had authority, saw to it that this man Stephen would die for following Jesus. Now, the story is wild. Paul uh, experiences this moment, and he's like, yes, that's a good thing. He goes and gets even increased kind of ramped up authority to now chase out and, and uh, smoke out all the followers of Jesus. And now they're persecuted. They're on the run. They're, they're fleeing from Jerusalem. They're going to other places. And Paul's like, it's not enough that they're eradicated from Jerusalem. Let's go on a manhunt, and let's track them down, and let's smoke them out. So he does, and he's on his way when uh, Jesus disrupts him. 
flash of blinding light. Paul is so stunned that he can't even see for three days. But in the midst of this shock and awe of Jesus coming to him, he hears the voice of Jesus saying, Paul, why are you persecuting not these people? Why are you persecuting me? Changed his life in a moment. Undeniably, he's like, I have met the living God that I've been trying to pursue through every jot and tittle, through every hoop, and through every hustle. And he has come to me. He has spoken to me in a way that seared me in my soul, blinded me for three days, and everything in his life changed. Not everyone believed it initially. Everyone was still scared of him, wouldn't touch him with a 10-foot pole. But over time, he actually gained the rapport, the trust of the other apostles, and in church history became, if not one of the most, if not the single most important person to take the story of Jesus and take it to those who would never know him called the Gentile world, not the Jewish people, but all the other. uh, If if in the Jewish world there were Jews and non-Jews, non-Jews were called Gentiles. And Paul was the one that brought the message to them perhaps the single most important person in church history, but he's carrying some baggage. I share all that to say he's carrying some baggage. If one person should be shooting all over himself, he probably thinks back to that moment where at his approval, people took large stones and threw them at the skull of this young man named Stephen until he breathed his last breath. Could you imagine that being on your conscience? It's not implausible that some of us actually could. And even to step back even further, for Paul to go, wait, 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 wait just a minute. As, it, as he's piecing it all together, the story of God is that, is that God created human beings in the image of him, and, they, and he's like, everything I've created is so good, but then sin enters the world, and all of a sudden, we're separated in relationship from God, and so what does God do? He, he collects a people called the Jewish people, and he says, it's going to be through you that we're going to bless everybody, right? And so the Jewish people, they were this conduit. They were this olive branch to the rest of the world, that they were going to go bless everyone else by which Jesus would ultimately come. And Paul's not putting it together when he's in his little like, I got to do this. I got to do this. I should do this. I should do that. I should do this. I should do that. And then he sees all these people coming to Jesus like, no, I'm going to stuff it out. And he's literally snuffing out the redemptive story of God. He is getting in in the way of what God wants to do throughout eternity. How would you like to have that on your conscience? Talk about shooting all over yourself. Talk about having a few regrets in life. See, that's what I think is so fantastic about this series that we're in, If I'd Only. And, and it comes from this book from Daniel Pink. Daniel Pink, by the way, if you're, if you're familiar with Malcolm Gladwell or Dan and Heath Chip, some of these kind of business research journalist writers, right? They're, they're kind of in the triumvirate of high research, but really compelling data that they bring down, take the cookies and put them on the lower shelf. And this book called Regret is absolutely fantastic. And his whole premise is, We've lived our lives as if to say, let's live with no regrets. He goes, that's impossible. That's foolish. Actually, what if we enlist our regrets for good? And the research shows, as he's researched in 105 countries, 
16,000 kind of data points, he has um, come to some really cool conclusions that if we don't dwell in our regrets or deny our regrets, we can actually enlist them, he calls it, or leverage them for good. So here we are, we're in the fourth part of the series, and I would like just to do a little bit of a review over what we've covered so far and what we're going to touch on today to kind of land the plane on this idea of regret. And so we're gonna review a little bit of, gonna create a little grid here, a little, what do we wanna call it? Spreadsheet, a whiteboard spreadsheet, here we go. Uh, we're gonna talk about the regret and then this phrase, if I'd only, if I'd only, right? And so we kicked off, I believe Roy did, with what's called a foundation regret. This is when in our early stages of life, all the way through our school years, <clears throat> that we look back on our life and go, gosh, if only I had done the work. If only I had done the work, if only I had gone to school, applied myself better, if only I had taken what was given to me and put myself into a better position. Here's a, a person who has this kind of uh, uh, thought from, this comes actually from the data. Let's go ahead and put it right up on the screen. Here's a 45-year-old woman in Ireland. She said, I didn't look after myself when I was younger. I drank and smoked too much and slept with too many guys. That's her expressing a foundational regret in her life. And she's probably going, man, I just feel like I stole a lot of years from my, my own life. And I continue to carry a lot of baggage in today. In other words, I had a rocky foundation. <laughs> like I, I built my life, as Jesus would say, on a bunch of sand and not on a rock. If only I'd done the work. By the way, as we go through this, I want you just to, um, in fact, at your table or on your seat, there's a card. And I'm gonna be asking you just to be thinking about, is there one regret that has power over you? Is there one regret? You might have many, that's okay. I know that Roy last week and even a couple of weeks ago said, hey, write your failure resume. I thought that was an awesome idea. Um, and we'll talk about why here in a moment. But that's what this is for. This is for you to say, as we go along here, give a little review, it's okay, by the way, it's awesome if this is your first week with us. We're gonna basically re rewind enough so that you're on the journey with us. Here's the first one, foundation regret. The next one is called the boldness regret. The boldness regret sounds like this. If I'd only taken the risk. If I'd only taken the risk, if I'd only quit my job and gone for it, if I'd only uh, told her I loved her, if I, if I had only actually jumped and done that thing, that dream that was in my heart, if I'd only taken the risk. There is uh, a man in the state of Washington in the research from Daniel Pink, 62 years of age. Still, when he was a young man, he thinks back to that day, he was on a train in Europe, met this young woman, and they got to her stop, and he had to make a decision. Do I continue on to my pre-planned destination, or do I get off when this young girl gets off? And it could have changed the whole trajectory of his life. If you remember the old movie, like Sliding Doors, this was that sliding door moment. And he said, I never saw her again, and I've always wished that I'd stepped off that train. 
Some of us carry that kind of regret of going, gosh, I hadn't gone for it, and now it's too late. Uh, let's, let's jump to the next one. Foundational, boldness, a moral regret. There's only four, by the way, if I haven't said that yet. The moral regret sounds like this. If only I'd done the right thing. If only I had done the right thing. And this is when we look back on our lives and go, man, I messed that up. And it can go way back to our, to our childhood even. Here's, here's a young, no longer, well, because I'm turning 50 this year, I'm gonna still stay with. Here's a young lady from Kansas who looks back on the school bus in elementary school and she says, I would have had the courage to be nice. I wish, I wish. I would have had the courage to be nice to the scared little girl who got picked on and no one, including me, let her sit with them. I lost my integrity and it haunts me in the middle of the night and still makes me cry. These quotes, by the way, they come from you can actually go to, if you just Google Daniel Pink, Power of Regret, surveys, literally 16,000 surveys of asking people, what are your regrets? And people just write them in. And, and he said, I thought people would be really reserved, but no, actually, what people have found is like, it's very cathartic to actually get these things out. And people are very, if you will, generous with describing the types of things that they carry with them into their life. Here's the last one, and this is the one that I get to speak on just a, a little bit. We're gonna just touch on this, and it's called the connection regret. And the connection re regret says, sounds like this. If only I'd reached out. And here, a daughter describes the passing of her mom. I regret not being nicer to my mom. I took her for granted when I was younger, thinking I was so much smarter than she was. Typical teenager, I know. When I grew up, we argued over politics, both of us passionate about our viewpoints now, now that she is gone. I miss her desperately, so much that it takes my breath away sometimes. How many of us carry a regret about the way things ended? And maybe that person has passed and you don't feel like there's anything you can do about that and it haunts you still in the middle of the night, whatever it, it might be. That little phrase, by the way, for me, if only I'd reached out, has been a helpful thing to enlist as I think about the relationships that I have today. I shared a f maybe now a month or so ago um, with you all about, we were talking about the power of community, we were talking about the power of connection, how that when we are in meaningful relationship, we'll live something like 15 years longer. We, we will be less prone to dementia, to stroke, to heart disease, to also like we were designed and made at our core for relationship. And I shared with you that um, two things, so this is a little bit of an update moment. I think I shared one, that I had a really hard relationship that spanned many, many years, 
and, um, and I've since learned, this was a mentor actually in my life. Um, I've learned that um, he, he has terminal cancer. And that phrase, if I'd only reached out, uh, just stuck with me. And I, I got to this place where I'm like, I don't want my friend, though it's been a complex relationship, I don't want him to die and deal with that phrase, if only I'd reached out. He lived in another state, and I actually made plans. I reached out, and I said, could I come and see you? And um, he graciously accepted, and, and we spent an afternoon together, and all I really had in my heart was to tell him thank you not to revisit the pain or the past or anything else, but just simply to say thank you. And it was this phrase that I kind of futuristically leaned into. If only I'd reached out. I'm like, I don't want to say that, so I'm going to reach out now. I think I shared also um, one of the last times I was with you about um, one of my best friends in life. And we kind of hit a weird, rocky place. And we're kind of finding our way back in it. And he very... Um, generously invited me to go play a round of golf at his country club. Anybody remember this? It's okay if you don't. But I lost like a ball on every other swing. It was horrible. I'm like, I'm never playing again. And then I actually felt like God said to me, hey, if you, one way that you can invest in the friendship is to get better at golf. And I'm like, no, thank you. I think I'm done. <laughs> but I really, I was like, okay, if I really care about this friendship, how do I enter into his world? because that's kind of what he was asking me to do. I'm like, all right. So I'm very excited to say, I took my, golf le- my first golf lesson in about 35 years yesterday. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and my, my Q1 goal is to become a respectable golfer. And I'm not telling him. I just want to show up and be awesome, basically, when we play. If I'd only reached out. Because there's something in us so powerful. It's like this beacon in us that longs to be in meaningful relationship. And when we don't have it, or when things are sideways, like in this drama. So did you read the little opening prelude that this was actually written by Brandon? Brandon played the, the brother who was experiencing all the pain of the dysfunction of his brother who suffers from alcoholism. So Brandon wrote that about, and I have permission to share with you, about his relationship with his brother Chris, who um, today would say that he is a sober alcoholic and working out his sobriety every single day. He wrote this story. He said it looked very different, but there was such a moment there where his brother Chris had to decide, am I going to just let this go, or am I going to step in and take ownership and reach out and surrender the outcome, by the way. It's a powerful, beautiful move. And I'm curious for you, which one of these four has the most zing for you right now? Is there a regret that has come up that's hit the surface for you? That if you, were to, if you were to ask to write your own kind of thing in the Bible like the Apostle Paul, you just go, I don't deserve. I don't, maybe it's a moral regret. That would have been his, right? If we go, where, where does the Apostle Paul fit with him having basically blood on his hands? It would be under the moral regret. If only I'd done the right thing. What did the right thing for Paul at that time? It would have been to actually stop 
the, the murder, to have stayed their hands, to have gotten them to, to have done actually what Jesus did in a different circumstance, to get them to drop their stones. But instead, he nodded in approval. That's his moral regret. What for you? By the way, I think it's just genius of God to use a murderer like Paul as an example because he, God knows that we are a comparative people. We're going to constantly compare ourselves one to another and say, well, I'm better than him, or I'm not as bad as her, or, you know, and, I'm, and I think God's like, all right, here's the deal. They're going to compare, so I'm going to give them Paul, who was trying to stand in the way of me, who actually was persecuting me. And so if anybody's like, well, I've, I've lived a really horrible life. Okay, as bad as Paul? If you're going to compare, I'm going to give you, in Paul's words, the worst of all sinners, the least of all apostles, one who persecuted the church of God. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to just simply grab your pen, if you haven't already, and I want you just to write down. I think there's something important about writing it down. I'm not going to ask you to do anything with it publicly, by the way. I'm not going to ask you to come drop it into a bucket, not going to ask you to light it on fire, not going to ask you to stand and share with your neighbor. This is just for you to write down. Daniel Pink, you can keep writing, by the way. Um, you can continue on after um, we conclude here together. Daniel Pink stood back and he looked at all the 16,000 plus. By the way, it's more now. It's 16,000 at the time of printing. But he said he, he looked at it and he categorized all the regrets into these four. But then he began to actually dig more deeply into where do these regrets come from? And what are we actually aspiring towards? Like regret seems to reflect a target that as human beings we're going after. Does that make sense? It's like we've kind of, we, we regret it because we've missed the target. We long for something that we're not attaining because we made a decision or we didn't make a decision that would get us there. That's where regret, like there's a target and when we, we, when we shoot a skew, we miss it, the regret is the gap between. Does that make sense? So what's the target, Daniel Pink? By the way, not a believer at all, but what are we going after? And he says, it's essentially what he calls the good life. And I think, well, that's interesting. That's very interesting to me. This is, Jesus talks about the good life. It's like, I've come that you would have life and have it to the full. Paul goes on to say, I want you to take hold of the life that is truly life. So I just think that's kind of interesting. 
And he said, for somebody who's dealing with a foundational regret, if I've, if I've only done the work, what we really want is a sense of stability in our lives. And for somebody that's dealing with a boldness, if I'd only taken the rest, risk, what we really want in our humanity is we want growth. We want to be a people who grow, expand, build stuff, take ground. And if somebody's dealing with a, a sense of moral regret, if I'd only done the right thing, there's a code in us desiring the good life that simply is expressed through goodness. Yet, yeah, we're, we're broken, we're kind of messed up, but we desire a sense of virtue, of being good. And then lastly, for somebody suffering from a connection uh, regret and not having reached out when they could have, what are we really longing for in this good life? Just quite simply, love. Love. I'm curious, I'm not going to ask you again, but as you look at what you have written down, you go, is that where the regret comes from? Because I really just long to have stability, or I just really want to be a person who's growing and showing up as my best self, or I really just want to be a person who's good and good to others, or I really just want to experience, at my very core, I want to experience love. I don't know, I don't know, but here's what I do know. I do know that where Daniel Pink, I think, has done some really astute analysis and assessment and the data is like super, you know, stout and all of this stuff, his prescription for how do we get there is fairly predictable. It's fairly predictable. He just basically says, well, learn from your mistakes, apply them, and move forward so that you can experience the new life, which isn't all that different than any other religious code on the planet. And I'm just going to tell you right here now that what we're about to enter into here in the rest of our time together is going to separate and distinguish us from every other religious code I've ever been experienced to, including what Daniel Pink espouses. That... Essentially, we have drafted up a religious code that's not all that different than the Eightfold Path of Enlightenment. It's not that different than the five pillars of Islam, or Judaism, or Catholicism, or how many of us experience Christianity when Christianity runs amok. It's not all that different, actually, than one of the most popular things today called karma. Karma is an Eastern, comes from Eastern philosophy that I think has crept into a lot of our theology as Christians. I think we're like karmaized Christians, kind of like caramelized onions, you know, but we're like karmaized Christians where we get confused on how this works. I mean, in, in essence, if I were just to boil down karma as I understand it. It's this idea that in the universe, there is this thing called fairness, and everything has to kind of be right-sized and brought into equilibrium and fairness. So if you mess up, the universe is going to find you. It's going to come out to get you to make it right, ultimately, because everything has to be brought back to a sense of stasis and fair. You tracking with me? You mess up, 
The universe is out to get you. That is radically different than the message we find in the scriptures, than the story that Jesus told. It's not that the universe is out to get you, it's that the living God has come to you. So very different, so very different. It was different for Paul, and it's different for you and for me. What we're not dealing with here is karma. You have a regret, just do a bunch of good to bring everything back to stasis and equilibrium. Oh, no, 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 it's, it's far more unfair than that. In fact, to be a follower of Jesus, you have to get comfortable with it being radically unfair. Scandalously so. And I love how Bono, the lead singer of the band U2, distinguishes between karma and grace. He was doing an interview that was actually turned into a book by a guy named Mishka Asayas. And they're having this conversation. If you know Bono, he's going to weave into spirituality and all sorts of meandering ways. And he says this thing, the thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. And Mishka's like, hmm, I haven't heard you talk about that. And Bono's like, well, I really believe we've moved out of the realm of karma into one of grace. And Esaias is like, I still not clear. <laughs> you know, please expound. Well, you see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, or in physics, in physical laws, every action is met by an equal or an opposite one. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm actually sure of it. And yes, along comes this idea called grace to upend all that as you reap, so you will sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. Oh, says Mishka, be interested to hear about that stupid stuff. And Bono's like, for another time between me and God, but I'd be in big trouble. Get this, don't miss this if karma was going to finally be my judge, I'd be in deep shit. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am, and I hope I don't have to depend on my religiosity. If all that we have is a grid to live by, we are in trouble. I can't do it. I know my thoughts too very well. I know all the things inside I like. If it's all about balancing the scales, I'm hosed. But what I need more than anything else is the grace of God. And for a murderer and a persecutor of the church, what did Paul experience? What rushed in with the blinding light that left him blind for three days? Grace. Look with me at how he continues. Well, let's just remember what he says. I'm the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. How could he not live with a sense of shame and burden and regret? How could he actually be mobilized or actualized to do anything, to be of use to God in any way, to be set free from his sins? And here he has in verse 10 the answer, but by the grace of God, 
I am what I am. Do you sense the freedom there? By the grace of God, I know I have a past, this religious pedigree, all of this resume of all the good things I've done, but I also have blood on my hands. You know what? That's all in my story. I am what I am. But there's this thing called grace that just surrounds me, inculcates me, absorbs me, transforms me from the inside out. Grace is not this like kind of, it's not this thing. It's like an agent. It's like this thing that lives and breathes in us. That's the only way I know how to explain it. It's like, it's like, it's this, it's like yeast and you just get a little bit of it and it's, it's just so amazing. It just grows and grows and it just completely takes over and that's what you get this sense of Paul. He's like, I am what I am by the grace of God. And again, get this, here's the agency of grace. And his grace to me was not without effect. How does he enlist his regrets? He does so by enlisting grace. How do we experience the good life as Pink would describe it? But as Jesus says, the life that is truly life, the life that is to the full, well, they're truly, every other religion says, well, you gotta like get over this hurdle, right? You gotta, get, you gotta jump through these hoops. But, but Paul's like, no, it's the grace of God. It is the grace of God. Because the reality in the story that we believe in and the story that we tell and the story that when you look at your cards is this, whatever your regrets, if you have a foundation regret and go, oh man, if I only had done the work, here's the good news, Jesus did the work for you. He did the work on the cross. And when you receive that work on your behalf, you'll work all the more, Paul says. And if you have a boldness regret and go, man, if only I'd taken that risk, Jesus took the risk on your behalf. He risked heaven and earth and his very life for you and for me. And if you're regret, you're looking at your page going, there's so much moral regret. If you saw, Dan, my failure resume, you just need to know that if only you'd done the right thing, guess what? Jesus has taken your every wrong thing and he's made it right. He's the only one who's good and perfectly good. And for any of us carrying the connection regret, if only I'd reached out. You guys, that's what God did in Christ. He came from heaven to earth as the ultimate cosmic eternal reach out from God because he loves you and he wants to be with you because at his core is relationship. And so all we need to do is actually do what Pink says we should do. It's interesting. He says we need to we need to seek catharsis and confess and enlist our regrets, right? We need to just kind of come clean. And we've been leading you through a bit of this process. You know what the Bible calls that? Repentance. It's the best word I know. If re repentance gives you the religious heebie-jeebies, I totally get it, right? Because maybe it was your upbringing. Maybe it was somebody who stood on a really high stage and was like, repent, right? It's like, I gotta tell you, Repentance is the most beautiful thing in the world. And what unlocks our ability to experience grace, to jump off in the deep end of the pool of God's love for you and for me, it's just simply to say yes to his goodness, say yes 
to all that he has done to say yes to his love. That's what repentance is. It literally in the Bible means to change your mind, to turn around. And if you look at this word throughout all scriptures, it associates repentance with the following things. Rest. How many of us want rest in our life? We're so anxious. Quiet. How many of us just, things are so loud in our head and I just want to be quieted in my inner spirit. It's associated with seasons of refreshing. Who would long just to be refreshed, to be renewed? When we repent, it leads to fruit, to life, to vitality. It's described as being good news, and guess where it comes from? Not the judgment of God, but the kindness of God. That's all that we need to do, get to do is simply that you have a God who loves you. You've got God who brings you the stability, who wants you to grow, who is good when we are bad, and who just loves you impeccably and irrevocably. And all we need to do to experience the grace that envelops us all is simply to say yes. So look at your card. What would it look like for you to say, with this thing that I've written down, I'm gonna say yes to God, and I'm gonna allow his goodness to right this wrong. What would it look like to say yes to God and say, I can't go fix this relationship until I receive first his love? By the way, the good news in Brandon and Chris and those two brothers is Chris is Uncle Chris to Brandon's kids now. They're restored in relationship because of the life of Christ flowing through them both together. Not perfectly. They're still human. They're still walking their own path but beautifully. We're gonna continue to sing. The band's gonna come out. I wanna pray for us. And uh, I want us to still stay in a place of reflection here. And I want you just to keep asking, Lord, what would it look like to do this differently? To allow your goodness, your growth, your love, your stability to come into all of this. Does that make sense? Does that make sense up there? Yeah? And so, Father, we just pray over this moment and this time. I just thank you that you disrupted the code of this world of karma And you have completely upended it with your grace. And we just say over what's written here, Holy Spirit, come. Come into our hearts. Speak into these things that cripple us, that paralyze us, 
that grip us in fear and bring a release, bring a newness, bring a refreshing because what we've written, we write to you. We write these things to you and we say, God, we're sorry. And may there be the beautiful release of refreshing. May there be a new quiet that comes. May there be a sense of rest upon our souls. May there be a new fruit that comes into this relationship. May there be a new season of refreshing that we experience because you breathe new life into these spaces where there might be ashes. We're asking you to bring beauty. And we pray this in the name, Jesus, your beautiful name. Amen.